Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 47, February 7th to February 13th, 1862. Last week, we talked about Lincoln's response to the King of Siam, now present-day Thailand, about the prospect of elephants in America. We also got a little talk about elephants and their use in wartime, as well as more in-depth overview of the Seminole Wars. This week, we are exclusively in North Carolina, specifically on the coast. We have the successful assault of the Union forces under Ambrose Burnside on Roanoke Island. Before we get into the Civil War history of Roanoke Island, I want to discuss very briefly the island with a little antebellum overview Now, if you have ever been to the Outer Banks, you may have heard of, been on, or have seen Roanoke Island. It lies relatively in the middle, north of Hatteras, which we talked about last year. You may also have heard of Roanoke Island because it was the first English colony in America. It was here, way back even before Jamestown, that the English specifically Sir Walter Raleigh, established a colony in 1585 originally, but was reestablished in 1587, although Raleigh did not actually go himself. Raleigh was an adventurer and soldier under Queen Elizabeth. Raleigh commissioned the first expedition and found a place where it would be practical to strike at the Spanish and their possessions. Two native persons returned with the expedition back to England to impress investors. It's funny because you have already heard of Jamestown and Plymouth probably, but not Roanoke. Part of this could be because Roanoke did not survive as an English colony. Well, what happened? We don't really know, unfortunately. There have been many dramatic movies, TV shows, that have depicted the events, supernatural or otherwise, of Roanoke Island, but the fact is, we just don't have all the facts. Reportedly, Roanoke Island became a colony because a ship's pilot betrayed Captain John White on an expedition along the coast. White left for England, unwillingly to get more supplies, but he would not return for three years, at which point all of the people were gone, including his daughter and granddaughter. Now, why did he not return for three years? Well, you may have heard of the Spanish Armada, so that made travel to the New World, travel to this potentially new colony, sort of irrelevant. Written on a tree was the word Croatan, the name of the local tribe. Croatan was also the name of Hatteras Island, fun fact, but White was not able to search, returning to England empty-handed. There are many possibilities. 
relations with the natives were not exactly on good terms, so it is possible the native peoples wiped out the colonists. The Spanish could have been a likely source of the disappearance of the people as well. Remember, Raleigh is looking for a spot where they can actually challenge the Spanish possessions in the New World. North Carolina is not too far from Spanish-held Florida at this time, so could be they took advantage of the lone colony just to go ahead and get rid of it. There may also have been an inland fort where the colonists fled to. We just do not know. It's a historical mystery to this day. In 1861, Confederate forces occupied and fortified the island in an effort to control the Pimlico Sound and the Abermole Sound, as the island divides the two. You see, we mentioned that Hatteras had been taken in 1861. This was the next line of defense for the North Carolina coastal cities in the region. The Confederate troops were in the department of Benjamin Huger, who was in charge of the region all the way north in modern-day Virginia Beach. The immediate troops on Roanoke Island were under the command of our old friend Henry Wise. Now it's funny we mention Wise because we're going to be seeing John Floyd next week at Fort Donaldson, but here we have the other half of the duo who saw action in western Virginia during the Carnifex Ferry Campaign. Wise had fallen ill and was not present on Roanoke Island, instead the commander being Colonel Henry Shaw. On paper, the defenders numbered some 2,500, but due to disease, there were most likely less fit for duty. Besides the infantry, there was the Mosquito Fleet under the command of William Lynch. These were eight converted civilian vessels, the prevailing thought by the Confederate Army being that they were more trouble than they were helpful in the defense of the island. This would be because, of course, they were taking manpower away from the defenders of the fort, away from the ground forces. In addition, cannon also need to be repurposed for this makeshift rebel navy. In total, there were only nine pieces amongst the ships, which probably could have been better used in the coastal defense. On the Union side, we have the Coastal Division under Ambrose Burnside. I think when we last met Burnside, it would have been at First Bull Run. If you recall, during our introduction for the Bearded General, he was close friends with George B. McClellan. Burnside would go to his friend with a plan to capture the Confederate coastal cities. It was his original idea to take Portsmouth and the surrounding areas south of Fortress Monroe, but it was deemed more helpful to the war effort if the northern part of the Carolina coast was seized for the Union. Burnside's plan included joint operation with the Navy, but we will see this separation of branches as the Army controlled a handful of gunboats in the division as well. The Navy did not possess as many vessels who could be seagoing 
but then also handled the lower draft of the sounds and rivers, so the army would attempt to put together their own group of gunboats. These, as you could imagine, were not as effective or as well put together as the naval vessels due to lack of proper experience. They were also less numerous, numbering only eight. Some 15,000 men made up the coastal division. These soldiers were often selected from the northeastern locations. Their familiarity with water and the ocean was seen as valuable for the operation. Flag officer Lewis Goldsboro commanded the North Carolina blockading squadron that would assist Burnside. This group contained 20-some ships, the best being the USS Philadelphia, the flagship for Goldsboro. We will soon talk in more detail about the ships involved during the Battle of Elizabeth City, which occurs shortly after the Battle of Roanoke Island. There were three brigades in the Coastal Division under the command of Jesse Reno, John Foster, and John Park. Jesse Reno was born in Wheeling, West Virginia, but spent most of his childhood in Pennsylvania. He would attend West Point in the same class as McClellan and Stonewall Jackson. In Mexico, he performed well at the Battle of Chapultepec Castle. Prior to the Civil War, he was placed in command of arsenals, including one in Alabama, which he was forced to surrender to state troops. He will be with us all the way until South Mountain, immediately prior to Antietam. John Foster was a New Hampshire native and also had graduated from the same class as Little Mac. Foster had served in Mexico as an engineer and had been in that capacity prior to the outbreak of war between the states. He will go on to command the Department of Florida. John Park had also attended West Point, but had served up until the Civil War in the Corps of Topographical Engineers. The Pennsylvania native will be attached to Burnside for much of the war, serving as his chief of staff during the Fredericksburg campaign, and he will succeed him following the Battle of the Crater in 1865. Goldsboro and the Navy will get the action started on February 7th. Earlier, the Navy had made its way down to North Carolina, stopping in Fort Monroe on the way. In transit, Burnside had placed himself in a less sturdy vessel so as to share in the hardship with his men. I think this is a good example of Burnside not as the incompetent that he is sometimes portrayed. Along the way, there were three vessels lost, including the transport with many of the horses for the army. Luckily, though, only two casualties were sustained. While the army regrouped, and prepared for their assault, the Navy would steam toward the island and engage the Confederate fortifications. Bombardment would begin with return fire from the island as well as from the Mosquito Fleet. The Confederates were unable to bring all of their guns to bear on the Navy ships who opened up on both targets from long range. 
One of the ships of the Mosquito fleet, the CSS Curlew, was hit with a shot below the waterline, causing the vessel to run aground in front of the batteries, making them entirely unable to answer the guns of the U.S. Navy. All day and into the night, the bombarding continued. The Mosquito fleet, as well as the blockade squadron, running out of ammunition. Amazingly, it took the Confederate land forces a very long time to react. This may have been a product of Henry Wise being incapacitated, but there was a late effort to request reinforcement to the island, two regiments arriving just in time to surrender to Burnside's men. On February 8th, the land assault would commence by the Union troops in Foster's Brigade, supported by Reno and Park. The Confederate defensive lines come into question during this part of the engagement. Facing a frontal assault, the rebels could only bring around 400 men into position to face the enemy. The flanks of the earthworks were protected by swamps, so no additional troops were thought to be necessary due to this seemingly impassable terrain feature. When the opening assaults by men under Foster were unsuccessful, Elements of all three brigades moved through the swamps and flanked the Confederate positions. Once the initial defensive line was compromised, that was it for the Southerners. There had been no second line made, so there was no fallback. With the Union forces advancing on the Confederate camp, virtually surrounding them, Shaw was forced to surrender. The victory was a resounding Union success. Casualties were 37 killed, 214 wounded for the North, 22 killed, 58 wounded for the South. The entire 2,500 rebel force surrendered, a blow to the manpower needy Confederates in the region. With Roanoke Island in Federal hands, this would be a staging point for continued incursions into North Carolina. Pamlico and Abermurl Sounds were both open to the Navy and could no longer be used for Confederate raiders or blockade runners. Roanoke Island itself would actually become a haven for escaped slaves for North Carolina. A self-sustaining community was built there, the numbers reaching over 3,000 by the end of the war. The Mosquito Fleet that had been put together by the Confederates was a testament to their disadvantage at naval operations when compared to the North. All of them were converted civilian vessels, and as already mentioned, they were unable to bring a large amount of guns to bear. Each of the converted ships was manned by former infantrymen, who were farmers by profession mostly, and not used to operation on the water. Still, they were able to, for a time, prove to be an irritation to the U.S. Navy in the region. At the conclusion of the Battle of Roanoke Island and the capture of the Confederate forces, the goal remained clear, eliminating the rest of the threat. Football coaches sometimes have a saying like, finish the job or finish the drill, and this was no different for the Union Navy. They were ready to finish the job all right. Captain Rowan led several vessels from the Atlantic Blockading Squadron toward Elizabeth City, after the Mosquito Fleet. The Federal vessels under his command were also former civilians, 
but they could bring 37 guns on the enemy as opposed to the 10 or so the rebels could manage. Ammunition was running low on both sides, which was something that Southern Flag Officer Lynch probably wanted to have known. His strategy was to conserve his ammunition. In fact, there was a vain attempt to send to Norfolk for resupply. Lynch was counting on protection from a shore battery known as Cobb's Point. This position was also in poor supply and manned partially by unreliable militia. Each of the vessels was given an order to destroy the ship rather than be captured. If they were able to ram the enemy, this was preferable. Escape was also acceptable. Captain Rowan ordered his ships to bypass the shore battery. Their focus would be the enemy vessels, as they too were running low on ammunition. On February 10th, the Union vessels steamed toward Elizabeth City. Cobb's Point engaged the oncoming enemy, but their fire was not effective. In addition, guns were abandoned by the militia, so they were not at all operational. The CSS Black Warrior was the first casualty, succumbing to the fire from Rowan's ships. Rather than risk capture, the crew set the vessel on fire. Likewise, the CSS Fanny ran aground and was lit on fire. The CSS Ellis was boarded by the USS Ceres and captured. The USS Commodore Perry destroyed the CSS Seabird. Despite being repaired from the action on February 8th, the CSS Raleigh was also destroyed by the Confederates. The CSS Beaufort would escape via the Great Dismal Swamp Canal to Norfolk. The CSS Appomattox attempted the same but needed to be destroyed, being too wide for the canal. With the destruction of the Mosquito Fleet, General Henry Wise would order the evacuation of Elizabeth City. Rather than just leave the city, he ordered fires to be started, burning the town rather than let it fall into enemy hands. Casualties during the engagement were relatively light. The Union lost two men killed and seven wounded. Confederate losses were four killed, six wounded, and 34 captured. Moving forward, there would be little in terms of a response to the blockading by the Union fleets. Next month, we will see an attempt to potentially break free with the CSS Virginia, but this would be checked by the introduction of the USS Monitor to the war. So we have two huge victories for the Union along the North Carolina coast in 1862 that we can hang our hat on now. Ambrose Burnside will gain some fame that will eventually see him as a potential candidate for command of the Army of the Potomac later in the year. Next week, we will head back to Tennessee and finish off Forts Henry and Donaldson, as well as see Unconditional Surrender Grant back in action. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be greatly appreciated.
Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.